0: It's a a good, it just warns people I'm not somebody they've accidentally forgotten that they've met. I'm just Sandy Moser and I'm not important. You know, I think, when I think about
1: Sandy, she's kind of a person that crept up on me a little bit. Oh man, I would say Sandy Moser's full of gold. Sandy is a no nonsense, constant outpouring of love. This Sandy Moser, Lives rent free in my head.
0: When I tell people about her, I say she's almost 80, but she doesn't act it. I think she is one of a kind. I'm going to make her sound
1: pretty darn good, but yeah, fact is, she is.
0: I no, there's no reason for a documentary to be made about me. Thank you for asking the question.
1: Joining me on Moving Radio today is one of the filmmakers that will have their film screening as part of Northwest Fest it's coming up soon people it's Griffin Cork who's joining us today the director of a fantastic documentary called OMA it screens on Saturday May 14th what a prime piece of real estate on the uh, on the old schedule there Griffin. congratulations know. at 6 p.m <laughs> not at 1 p.m at 6 p.m so you know it's good and it's going to be happening at the Metro <laughs> Cinema and not only that do we get to talk to Griffin right now but you if you go and check out OMA will be able to see Griffin at the Q&A post-screening, which is going to be fantastic as well, because it's paired up with another great documentary film, too. And the subject of the film, and someone very close and near and dear to your heart, Griffin, Sandy Moser, will also be there. That's Um, Before we kind of get into that, let's maybe let the audience know about how your film uh, focuses on Sandy Moser, uh, your Oma, and her connection to the arts, and uh, a little number of 3,000 cloth masks. That's right. So uh, right when the pandemic
0: hit, uh, my grandmother didn't get to do one of her favorite hobbies, which is go to theater. And she'll always tell you that like theater saved her life because when her husband died some years ago, going to theater and receiving what she called a bedtime story is what kind of kept her going. And then, then like she met some people and her friends through the theater community and people started to like know who she was. And she lives by herself out on an acreage out uh, east of uh, Sherwood Park by South Cooking Lake. Uh, so, you know, getting out to see folks and especially getting recognized, I, I think she kind of liked. So when the pandemic started, it was a mix of like, what do I do now? But also this like a concern for all of her friends and she knows how hard the live event industry got impacted. So she started making cloth masks because she um, wore them. She worked in the polio ward uh, as she was growing up as a, as a registered nurse. And so she would just make the ones in the kind of like similar style. And she was cranking away, and we got kept getting like some donated fabric. And her granddaughter Ella would come and like cut wires. And eventually, yeah, she made three thousand. That was at the time of recording the actual documentary, which was in March of twenty twenty-one. And I think now she's at four thousand. If I'm, if I'm right, I don't want to spew any fake news here, but I want to say four thousand. And she will get very mad at you if you try and pay for them. And uh, there are a whole bunch of like Mario, Luigi, cool tie dye, mustache pattern, a whole bunch of
1: like crazy fabrics. So the story is kind
0: of about that.
1: Uh, what I thought was fascinating is because then I kind of read the summary of it I and mean, it, maybe it seems like the initial incident for it was this idea of, of Sandy deciding to create all these different masks and maybe, you know, a little bit of that connection to the arts community but I felt like there were so many more layers to that it's almost like that's the opening salvo. That's like, that's maybe the, the, the log line. That's the elevator pitch in some ways, but I felt like there's so much more to her clearly. She feels comfortable talking to you, but she's so humble. It's, it's quite (laughs) incredible, right? Like that's the big thing that just, that just emanates from my very short time with her (laughs) via film that I could tell that she was, you know, and that she'd be kind of dismissive about the importance of what she's done. How did you kind of get at the core of that, of trying to get kind of coax that out of her? Because it's very easy to get those testimonials, but to kind of get her to ease that guard down and talk about that. How difficult was that for you? Or did you find it like, honestly, all I needed to do is give her some hot tea and she was good to go?
0: I think I think you touched on something uh, really potent in that the um, actual feat of making thousands of masks for free, is like very impressive but you can't make a 48 minute documentary just about that feat of one person so yeah you're right it, it started as kind of like the way into the story and you know kind of our idea for when we pitched it to tell a story hive and then my planning was that I I went up there for three weeks just to like hang out with her before we shot like before we went into principal photography i just went out there to stay at her place for three weeks and just talk about like her, her life, her stories, her philosophies, her ideals, her values. And through that, I kind of realized of like, oh man, my grandma has a really cool life. And like some stories I knew, or some she like told me more details of now that I'm older and, uh, and stuff like, I don't know, as we started going through the, all the other interviewees other than Sandy, like Luke Tellier, Miyako Ochi, It was very clear that, one, Sandy didn't want to talk about the feat, because as you said, I would say she's infuriatingly humble, is that she doesn't (laughs) want any kind of recognition, any kind of accolade, nothing, which is what kind of spurred the documentary. I went, no, people love you, and I'm going to show you why. Her favorite phrase is, I'm Sandy Moser, and I'm not important. That's how she introduces herself to people, which is crazy. But as, you know, as you started talking to her, you realize that she doesn't really want to talk about the mask. So she'll just go on a story about her life or about the woodpeckers in her backyard. And then as you talk to the other folks, you realize that they'll talk about, you know, how lovely the mask is. And that's great. But mostly they want to talk about how much they love Sandy or their first time meeting Sandy or this amazing thing Sandy did for them. So it kind of turned into like almost a biopic in a weird way. Like just and, you know, there's some there's some commentary of like. What the work landscape was for women as she was growing up. Uh, some thoughts of like the medical profession or like the anti-mask movement. Like there's some there's some stuff peppered in. But yeah, I like the idea of the the mask introduction being an opening salvo, and then you get to the real battle.
1: Yeah, it's like that's maybe how you tricked her into being in it. So it's like, oh, we're just going to talk about the masks. Totally. Right? Yeah. Totally. And then yeah. you're like, you're like, oh, let's talk about some other stuff
0: for sure. <laughs> and, and there was times when she would go, we would just kind of put a lav mic on her for maybe five days straight, and then just leave it recording the whole time. That was my job during <laughs> editing, is to just go through the hours of audio footage we had. And we, but there was tactic involved with that, right? That we knew the first two days there would be a lot of like rehearsed answers, Like stuff that I knew that was coming, stuff that I know that Sandy wanted to say, and also just the idea of having like the camera crew around with it. Or Still a small crew, like it was just me, Morgan, and Melanie. Bless Morgan's technical knowledge that he can kind of just do everything. But yeah, the idea of like, let's not get into like the meat of stuff until she gets comfortable with like these three people, the camera pointing at her, the idea of the interview, which I think you can kind of tell throughout the documentary. If I'm remembering correctly, all of the interviews are in chronological order uh, that we actually took them in the documentary. So that last one right at the end in her recliner at nighttime was the last night of us shooting, which you just feel there's a you can see it in even her positioning, right? Where she's a little bit more hands clamped, very nervous, like kind of staring me down suspiciously in the first interview. And then in the last one, she's like feet up, knitting, who cares? It's nighttime. Like she may as well have a joint in her lips, right? It's just like, <laughs> she's very chill now. Yeah. Which is, I think also in its own, nice little mini journey that you can see just her get more comfortable
1: with the idea of us being there. We're speaking on moving radio today with Griffin Cork, the director of the film, Oma. You can see it as part of Northwest Fest on Saturday, May 14th at 6 p.m. at the Metro Cinema, uh, where Griffin and Sandy and also many other people involved with the film will be in attendance to talk to you post-screening. Clearly, being Sandy's grandson helped in you getting to open her up. And we talked about that a little bit. But how do you negotiate, I guess, that nature of, of being deeply humble? Like, did you feel like you already had clearly a connection but a way that you knew did you know that every time talking about theater because there's that moment where she's like talks about some of her favorite shows to be like oh I gotta stop or I'll keep going on right (laughs) like did you find you were like you started to find these kind of subtle ways to unlock her and then maybe when the camera shut down she's like I know what you did and I know what you're doing and you're very good at it but uh, you won't get me next time like did you find those little tricks of how to kind of unlock her a little bit I hope she, I'm sure she knows this. I hope she never hears this interview. She has to know this, but I'll I'll
0: reveal it in case she doesn't. Is there were a few times where I told Morgan that at the start of this interview, I'm going to tell you to, I'm going to be like, okay, that's it. And I'm going to do some hand motion and you have to fake pressing, like press stop recording. We absolutely did that a few times. And I think by like the third or fourth time she was like picking up on it because like Morgan and I wouldn't move and we'd still be in kind of like, quiet film mode or whatever but there's 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 a few tactics right which i think any interview or any documentary filmmaker will know is that there is a lot of it was tough for me interviewing my own grandmother to not kind of active listen of like haha yeah good because that ruins the whole take because they're just like some dude being like woo go grandma there's definitely tactics for it as well. But yeah, I, I do know, especially from that three weeks prior, there were some subjects that I knew she would just kind of go machine gun on. And we could kind of pick the, the creme de la creme that from out of that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you kind of referenced this idea of how when your grandfather passed away that for her, this connection to theater, it was more about maybe comforting, or trying to find a community. And so, I mean, for me, I kind of came up with this idea as I thought, like, maybe that was something she needed, like she could sit in the dark, be disconnected almost from what's outside the four walls, get lost in that story, because it's unfolding in front of you, uh, the, you know, the very real magic of it all, uh, and get swept up in that. And, but at the same time, I think, unwittingly, she unlocked a connection to this community right? That she had never really had that. Although through you and your mother, she kind of did. Talk to us a little bit about the importance of that connection and, you know, whatever the community may be, but especially with theater, a place that's been hit so hard in the last couple years and that's just starting to get back up on its feet.
0: It's a very people-focused industry from the get-go, right? It explores its resource is people its export and its import is people and stories and human experience Um, the thing that it delivers is like studying the stories and life experiences of a whole bunch of different people so just as like as an industry from the get-go it's very people focused and i also think that um that transferred to the way that the pandemic hit the industry is everybody was immediately at the same time worried for themselves and then worried for everybody they love that do the same thing, right? And I bet you every industry and every career has a taste of that, but because it's so directly involved with like the connection of people, the only way that theater happens, if people can connect with each other in a room for three weeks, rehearse it, then get it up there, I think it, it, it hit a lot harder for the live event industry. And I think in Sandy going to these plays and yeah, shutting off her brain for sure, and getting lost in the story. But in, in kind of the way that Mieko shared how she met Sandy is, it was she was just someone that she noticed Kate coming to the same shows, and maybe sharing the same reactions. So then it started off as just like little nods, like "Oh, I see you here," and then there would be like some little talks after the show, and then you get to hear like people's views and ideals based on the message of the show. Which I think talking about a theater piece. That you both just saw is a very good way to find common ground with somebody, and also like figure out what's important to them. The theater itself, the stories of it, is I think very important. On how it makes people very well equipped to then explore relationships after just seeing a presentation of how some relationships play out. I think it equips you to go and examine the relationships in your lives. So I think that I think that helped Sandy w- with the idea of community, and I and I, again I she didn't go. theater to be recognized in fact quite the opposite ideally but when you have someone that is so honestly fond of the work and honestly fond of the people like when she'll go up to people and like compliment their work tell the one the line she loved or the movement they made and they're just like stuck with them that sticks with people so then through that community is how she gets stuff like the donated fabric or she would get um told through someone through someone through someone that someone needed masks right So I, she starts I think it starts to make you feel that you're you're not so alone especially out of your in your bush acreage out by South Clean Lake is it there's a there's a kind of pulsing community that's existing there without having to be interacting with them at all times. And I also think I will say that just because of her previous career like as a registered nurse there's the in, and for three kids, there is the inherent need to take care of people it, and you you can make arguments of that just like a, from a matriarch standpoint but i think just as also a nurse i think it it really it really struck something with her
1: i think like at least what sticks out to me and that's maybe just because i'm pretty predominantly born and raised here have kind of like had a a bit of an outsider connection myself through the theater community as well Hmm. Um, that I just feel like it's it is incredibly tight-knit and I don't have as much of a context of living somewhere else and really experiencing it but in the several people that I would meet that either went somewhere else or had lived somewhere else before they came here they would talk about that of what the support is like and just how tight-knit it is and, and how much support there is from the city and outside of it, of the community that comes out to see them, whether it's Fringe or beyond the Citadel or even to all the incredible smaller companies. Talk to us a little bit about your feelings about that, the theater community in Edmonton and and her role in that.
0: I think what's very important is in the theater industry is making sure that there is a certain amount of community outreach where like what you don't want is is just theater for theater people right if this the same 20 bucks being passed around between each artist coming to see your show and then coming to see your show that's why there's so much so much focus around like trying to connect with like city events or trying to connect with um, uh, uh, other community groups or you know like the if the idea is there's the story is for the masses then it can't just be the arts focused people there's a lot of ideas about outreach so when you have someone like Sandy that was kind of drawn into theater, you know, her daughter and her grandson are very much involved in theater, but she was fine about theater. Like she would go to her kids' performances, but that's kind of it, right? So there, because the, I think that it's there was a new need recognized, right? So to have someone like Sandy that, is, that just comes into the community and falls in love with the community on her own like just of like wow that lame is performance really got me or like wow meeting the echo or meeting Luke is like, that's something that I think reminds a lot of people of why they do that kind of work. Right. Uh, the idea of, of building community of making lives better, and of affecting people in a way that they didn't expect to be affected. I think that's exactly what people strive for in the community. And so Sandy's role in that I, I think is she'll she won't admit it but i always knew that she would be humble throughout the whole documentary i knew and i didn't care because i knew that i could juxtapose it with all of these people talking about almost almost word for word the opposite she said something like i don't have an impact and then we cut to a clip of luke saying (laughs) this is the impact she had on me like almost almost precisely the opposite thing and that's fine she doesn't it would be a worse story if she was like i'm i rule here's five thousand masks dorks see ya and then drives off on a motorbike it would be a worse thing the idea of having an impact on somebody that you didn't expect to or some kind of community or person reminding you of the potential that you have to do good whether that be through putting on a play that really changes someone's lives or getting a delivery of six cloth masks when wow did you need those I think there's a lot of similarities in
1: the way that theater works to be empathetic and that Sandy Moser works to be empathetic. We're talking today to Griffin Cork, the director of the documentary film, Oma. It is about the person you just mentioned, Sandy Moser, and it screens as part of Northwest Fest on Saturday, May 14th at 6 PM at the Metro cinema. You know, you can get tickets at the door, but also, you know, buy your passes in advance ahead of time at Northwest Fest's website. When watching the film, I was I was really impressed because, you know, I end up seeing enough things about, uh, you know, intimate portrayals about somebody's like smaller uh, part of their life. But what I found that you did really well was you kind of gave us an experience that wasn't just the talking head of Sandy, because that would be good enough for me as Mm. an audience member, you know, you building a story right? And you were building a story visually on what you were cutting away from and how you talked about you just talked about with the editing yourself, right? So talk to us about the process maybe of shooting and also editing with your cinematographer and your partner, Morgan Ermter.
0: That is the huge upside of uh, making a documentary about a family member is that you and your cinematographer can just stay in grandma's basement and shoot for as long as you want so as part of the kind of tactics to get sandy very comfortable around the cameras we did a lot of the establishing stuff like around the property and some of like my favorite decorations and stuff that i had already kind of planned that i was going to ask her about on day one so she kind of just saw us in the backyard running around getting these shots of the outside of the house or, or you know her getting her mail or stuff like that but which just just getting used to the atmosphere of it the freedom to just be filming at grandma's house and if you want you can shoot for 12 hours she'll we usually do about one interview a day most like mostly for her but also so that if she said something really cool uh we could run and go get a video of that thing afterwards like we had the time and freedom to to do that and i i kept it really collaborative between morgan and mel and myself um it was never like just me asking the questions it's like morgan or mel had an interesting thread that they thought could be good for the story. They kind of jumped in with it, which I love. And I'm also very fortunate because Morgan himself is also a director. Um, so having a director as your editor is kind of lovely because we had, I want to say 12 hours of footage when we were finished. Because um, each interview was about an hour and then we got way too much establishing stuff. So having to go through each interview, pick out the best part and then, wow, we're still at six hours. Okay, go through it again, pick out the best parts and then, mm, okay, three hours there was so there's a few times where i was like i can't pick which one is the best dang it and morgan would be like okay i'm gonna kill some of your darlings here you go and of course he he there was there was one section i think it was maybe one of mieko's sections where i was like what did you remove here and he's like i'm not telling you and i'm like why he's like because then you'll want to keep it and i go ah i know <laughs> like I, it's it, i've learned a lot about a director editor relationship here it's, it's it's kind of one of my first larger forays into directing um if again if it was sandy's story i don't know if i would have felt so passionate about it but uh it's i was very fortunate to have morgan and mel in like we would send mel uh uh, cuts of what and trying to get it down to that 48 minute mark you know i would say very symbiotic relationship um where sometimes i need to be put in my place of like no you can't have a two-hour documentary about your grandma griffin and then sometimes i'll go nope i i need to fight for that part we got to keep that clip in yeah, it's, I, I, we kept it very collaborative,
1: which is the way that I like to I like to work. I mean, I thought in, in watching it, uh, I kind of felt that love and affection in, in, in every frame. So for me, I think it was completely perfect that you were not as objective as you could have been by being a complete outsider. Yeah. It's that it actually adds to it because you were able to shoot her and to frame things and to kind of give us a sense of her life beyond what she's just saying that really let us know who she was and and it's all in those details that's where the art's at totally which
0: you get to really accentuate in the editing right like the Mm -hmm. the matter of seconds or milliseconds from when you cut away from karen going i went to i went to theater school and i think she was fine with it and now how much silence do you leave before you hear sandy say I cried when they left, like uh-huh. like that. So playing with that is is very precise, because I I wanted it, I I think I wanted it to still feel very warm and like very personal. But the the comedy that is very naturally there, and and the way that Sandy views the world, um, I, I it was very important to me that that was very present.
1: Griffin Cork has been our guest today on Moving Radio. We're excited to have him because he was talking all about the film Oma. It's a documentary that you can check out at Northwest Fest. That's going to be on Saturday, May 14th at 6 p.m. at the Metro Cinema as with all screenings uh, for Northwest Fest. So check it out. It's going to be doubled up with uh eva colmer's film named quinn it's they're yeah. both fantastic it is so worthwhile it's going to be uh it's a night that'll uh it'll fill your soul i'm telling eva you be such cool stuff yeah yeah look don't discount yourself either you're both pretty cool griffin i'd say <laughs> right she's maybe just got a couple extra years behind the camera than you do that's okay certainly pro yeah she's a pro griffin thank you so much for the conversation I uh, really appreciate it thank you so much for the film can't wait to hopefully be there in the audience uh seeing it with you and see sandy as well together
0: that's very kind of you to say thank you for having me on and i uh, yeah i hope to see you there hope to meet you